supporting human conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign That's why you hear the same old things they claim Welcome to the Project Censored Radio Show I'm Eleanor Goldfield, your host for this week's show Which is all about COP, climate and change First off, I sit down with the Minister of State for Environment, Climate Change, and Technology of the Republic of Maldives, Khadija Nassim, to discuss the dire situation her home is in, a home that has been the vanguard not only of climate chaos, but of the movement to push wealthy nations to pay for loss and damages, a hot-button topic at this year's COP27 meeting. Ms. Nassim highlights the fight to bridge this inequality gap, the need for financial systems to shift in response to climate change, and what's at stake beyond just the loss of place, the loss of entire cultures. Next up, I speak with professor and activist Rory Verato about the false solutions and shallow promises of COP meetings, and the need for revolutionary language and actions. We also dig deeper into transformation of consciousness, the philosophy of change from within to global systems. All this and more coming up now on Project Censored Radio. Thanks, everyone, for joining us at the Project Censored radio show. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield, and we are very glad right now to be joined by Her Excellency Khadija Nassim, who is the Minister of State for Environment, Climate Change and Technology of the Republic of Maldives. Prior to her appointment as Minister of State, she facilitated a sustainable fisheries resources development project funded by the World Bank for the Ministry of Fisheries and Agriculture. She previously headed small grants projects at United Nations Development Program and has extensive experience in climate finance governance from Transparency International Maldives. She also was responsible for oversight of disaster risk management and emergency response tasks at Maldivian Red Crescent. Ms. Nassim holds an undergraduate degree in human ecology from College of the Atlantic, United States, and a Master's of Environment and Climate Policy from the University of Melbourne, Australia. Khadija, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Eleanor, and it's it's a privilege to be in your program, and thank you for giving the Maldives an opportunity to speak uh, on these important matters. Oh, absolutely. Well, the the, the privilege is ours, absolutely. Uh, and I, I wanted to uh, start by talking about a little bit of backstory, because there's a renewed call for payment by wealthy nations for the loss and damages incurred by climate chaos. And compared to smaller nations, of course, larger nations are not only more economically able to pay, but they are responsible for more of the climate change effects. So I want to go back actually to 1989. There was a small states conference on sea level rise held in the Maldives. And one of the first times a global call for climate change was made, named the Malé Declaration, uh, Malé being the capital of Maldives. Among other points, it made a pointed call to action from small island nations for, quote, all states of the world family of nations to take immediate and effective measures to control, limit, or reduce the emission of greenhouse gases, and to consider ways and means of protecting the small states of the world, which are most vulnerable to sea level rise. Uh, and this declaration is now, of course, more than 30 years old. And as uh, Robert Van Leerope, the, the first chair of the Alliance of Small Island States, said about waiting for more conclusive proof of climate change, quote, 
We do not have the luxury of waiting for conclusive proof. The proof we fear will kill us. So, uh, Ms. Nassim, I'm curious that these three decades of waiting for concrete action, what have those looked like in terms of climate change and indeed action uh, where you are in the Maldives? Thank you so much for this question. Um, so as you know, the Maldives has always been at the forefront of climate change. We're one of the most vulnerable countries to climate change, and we are only 1.5 meters above sea level. We're also an archipelago of um, 1,187 islands, and we have people living in approximately 200 islands. We also have 200 islands that are resorts uh, uh, in, that are currently in operation and some in the progress of construction. So we are a very, uh, I, I, would, I would say that the Maldives is a large ocean state, a small island state, because we're 99% ocean. We're also the seventh largest reef system in the world. Um, and so, as you know, the, the Maldives depends entirely on our reefs for our livelihoods, for tourism, for fisheries. And so our lives are inter intertwined with, with the ocean. And as you know, with the global warming, the ocean is a threat. The coral reefs are a threat. We know that it's expected that 90% of the corals could die if, if the temperature could exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius. So that means the Maldives is severely under threat. We're also 87 months away from 2030, which is when the 1.5 degrees is expected to shoot. We're currently living in the 1.1 degree world. So you'll see with what we are living. And over these 30 years, which is almost the entire entirety of my life, in fact. Uh, it, many things have happened. Maldives has continuously been on the forefront of climate change. There has been COP after COP, negotiations after negotiations on upping the ambition. And, and some good things have come out of it as well. The world has collectively agreed to at least keep the global warming well under two degrees, but for small island states, we're saying it has to be 1.5. So we are pushing for the 1.5 ambition. And uh, while while we are a very small island state, we we're doing our part, even on the mitigation front. We have pledged to be net zero by 2030, although our global emissions is only 0.0035% of the greenhouse gas emissions. And, and, and the whole point of this is, that you know, if small islands like the Maldives are willing to do this, bigger countries can also transition into the greener economies and take the necessary action that they should be taking. We also know that the G20 is responsible for 80% of the global emissions. Also the richest countries in the world, they should be doing more on mitigation, but also in transferring financial resources, technology and capacity that small countries like us need to address the climate uh, crisis. So for the Maldives in the past 30 years, we have seen the weather changing more. We have had uh, several um, cycles of uh, coral bleaching happen. Uh, we, we are facing more and more severe storms now, and we are facing inundation and, and, and coastal um, erosion, swelling, uh, the tidal swelling, and all of these things. And one of the biggest issues for us is most of our critical infrastructure is 
just very close to the beach. We our islands are very small, so each time there is a flooding event or a storm, uh, it affects the schools, it affects the powerhouses, it it affects the health facilities. So, in a nutshell, it 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 is becoming more and more challenging. But we're also resilient and we're also hopeful because without hope. Uh, we can't go on. So, so we are calling for the world to to keep their ambition uh, to keep the, to keep the world from overshooting the 1.5 degrees because that is when things will get really bad for countries like us. Uh, thank you. That was a that was a very powerful and answer, and uh, you touched on so many points there. I I mean, I just kind of stagger back at thinking how little of the global emissions picture the Maldives is, and yet works so hard to try and shift. I mean, the U.S. military alone is equal to the global emissions of 140 countries put together. So, I mean, <laughs> it's it's a it's a very stark difference there. And I know that uh, th- this the the aspect of loss and damage is something that even has been mm-hmm. talked about, like you mentioned it at cops and things like that. And back in two thousand nine, wealthy nations agreed that by twenty twenty, which was now two years ago, at least a hundred billion dollars a year would be provided annually from public and private sectors to the developing world, and that has not materialized. Meanwhile, the U.S. US military is almost a trillion dollar uh, budget. Money flows to Israel, to Ukraine, to Wall Street. So it's not a lack of money issue. It's a lack of willpower. And so how do you feel about uh, about the prospects of pushing larger states to pay for their role in climate chaos? Well, um, first of all, I would like to say that we are all in this together because we, you know, the effects we are feeling in the small island states are really intense. But we're also seeing in the United States, in Florida, there has been events, uh, uh, there, there has been uh, hurricanes and, and storms. We also had uh, just recently in Pakistan, over 30 million people were displaced and, and there, there was a freak uh, incident uh, in, with, with regards to the monsoon season. It, Europe has had very, very hot summers and, and had, has had a very um, devastating effect on, on its population. Uh, it has happened in the UK. So my point is that, you know, now whether you're a rich country or a poor country, whether you're really, really big or small, it is happening to all of us. It's just that the scale with which you're able to respond is different depending on your resources. And, and and this is where we feel that it's really important that small countries like us get the funding for adaptation because we cannot build back better for the future unless we have these resources. So I think I think the, the pledges are really great, but it's not being delivered. Uh, so the world has to really step up. It's already two years late. And um, and I believe that um, Germany and Canada are working on the on, on, on a on a climate finance report that they will present at the COP in terms of addressing this uh, ambitions gap in, in the climate finance space, uh, in mobilizing the hundred billion per year. We also since uh, COP twenty six in Glasgow there has been uh, the pledge to double the adaptation finance, which I think is really a good step forward, but we know that 
we know that the billions have to actually be trillions to properly um, <laughs> to properly address uh, the needs of the small island countries. So, so the the reality is there have been numerous pledges under the Paris Agreement and the UNFCCC framework that has not been delivered. And time is of essence here. I think I mistakenly said that we have 87 months until 2030, but actually we have 86. I'm just using last month's um, <laughs> number here. So, so the window to secure a livable and sustainable future for all is rapidly closing. And therefore, developed countries need to step up efforts to raise climate uh, climate ambition and close the emissions gap. And I'd also like to take this opportunity to highlight the need for developed countries to raise their ambition also in meeting the, the 100 billion climate finance goal uh, to support developing countries as well to to raise the climate ambition. But all of our development goals and everything we have to do has to be tied with the 1.5 degrees for a livable future, for, especially for small island states. Um, and as you mentioned, we have seen the response to COVID-19 to fight the pandemic health, the social economic impacts. We have seen countries approving trillions of dollars in stimulus packages. And we know therefore that if the political will is there, meeting the climate finance needs to achieve the temperature goal of the Paris Agreement is possible, actually. We need the climate crisis to be treated as an emergency, just like the COVID crisis, and, 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 and with the same level of urgency. And we know that the funding is available, but it is more so about the willingness to commit and really deliver. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, a pertinent comparison, a lot of people in the U.S. will talk about the war budget, the way that we shifted in the United States uh, to fight World War II, for instance. Our entire economy shifted in order to pursue the war effort. So it's not only possible, it's been done before to shift an economy to address a singular issue. Uh, and of course, the issue of climate change is is uh, is far more has far more potential to be disastrous than a single war. You're listening to the Project Censored radio show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. And we now continue our conversation with Minister of State for Environment, Climate Change and Technology of the Republic of Maldives, Khadija Nassim. So I want to actually shift, and you've touched on this a little bit already, but the upcoming COP27, which is in just a few weeks, uh, some groups are saying that the issue of loss and damage will really be a cornerstone of these talks. Uh, and unfortunately, talk is something that is very easy to do. And uh, as you've already pointed out, the burden of climate chaos is is already pressing uh, upon nations like yours. So I'm curious, uh, you know, you've already mentioned a few, but what are some concrete demands or goals that you have with regards to loss and damages that you'd like to come away with from the, the upcoming COP27? So the recent IPCC working group Two report shows for the first time that irreversible losses and damages is already a grim reality for vulnerable countries. And those who have contributed the least to the climate catastrophe are suffering the most from it. And so this is in the in the IPCC, which is the, the scientific authority um, to the convention. So so it's been established. And the report's findings are unambiguous. Vulnerable countries will not be able to adapt to warming beyond the 1.5 degrees limit. So that's very clear. 
adaptation is urgently needed, but it will not be enough without limiting the warming to 1.5 degrees. And we know and we already at the 1.1, so imagine what that would look like. Um, and even now, at the 1.1, the impacts have been very serious, such as the devastating floods in Pakistan, intensifying hurricanes in the Caribbean region, and extreme heat waves across Europe, as I mentioned earlier. A main priority for Maldives and the small island developing states is to establish the loss and damage financing mechanism within the UNFCCC process. For us, this must include both rapid onset and slow onset uh, losses and damages. So for loss and damage, uh, the Maldives believes that it's a very comprehensive and complicated um, issue. It has to address the, the short-term impacts. It has to also uh, address the long-term impacts, such as sea level rise and, and, and the implications. It has, to, it, it has to address the financial stability of the countries and the social protection systems. And this is also an opportunity for us to really think about the international financial systems and the reforms that is required, which the, these are things that are outside of the convention, but the way the financing world works has to change if we want to enable finance to flow for losses and damages, because this is now beyond adaptation and mitigation. This is like the third pillar, kind of. So so that is one aspect. And then the very future, um, it's not that much in the future, unfortunately, but the difficult conversations around losing your, your statehood, losing your culture, and losing your country. So addressing, addressing uh, addressing this aspect of displacement um, should all be included in the loss and damage conversation. And we believe that that loss and damage should be treated as a mosaic of, with a mosaic of approaches because of this. But in the COP, uh, we really do believe that, um, that, the, that there has to be a solution immediately for the immediate uh, financing needs of uh, of small island states that are facing losses and damages already at the 1.1 world. Yeah, absolutely. And as you pointed out, it's a manifold issue. It's not just something like building seawalls. Uh, there are entire there are entire cultures at stake. And I actually wanted to shift to, the, to this question next, since you mentioned it. And because I think it's easy to get stuck in talking about stats and data and lose the thread of what's really at stake. Uh, it's it's more than just land. It's entire ecosystems that exist in no other place, like you mentioned, the reefs and the Maldives. It's entire cultures that are tied to that place, as all cultures are, that couldn't exist anywhere else. So can you talk about what you feel is important to recognize outside of of that data point and those stats that uh, that, that might also be important for people to consider? Well, that's uh, it's actually something very emotional for for people to even begin to think about, because you are tied to to your country and your roots, and in in the the idea that you might lose your home. Uh, and not in the very distant future is quite a scary thought. And, and maybe this is a reason why people have not even begun the discussions in some places. So I think I think that that value that that all of that is going to lose along along with uh, climate change. There's so much at stake here. And I think 
you know, the world is a nice place because of the diversity of different places and different cultures and different countries. And, and so even though you're very small and your population is very small, it really matters, like your home matters. And, 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 and so it is very, very important. That's why, that's why we go to these COPs and that's why we highlight the 1.5 so much and, and why we are calling for the financing uh, to be available to countries to deal with the with the impacts because we don't want to we don't want to lose our home and we want to continue living in the Maldives and we want to continue living well into the future where climate change impacts are going to happen more frequently but but still we want to be resilient and we want to stay here which is why we're fighting so hard um, in, in the convention and, and and within the within the legal spaces to ensure our rights to our home um, and, and this is also where I think it's important to highlight the, the real need for adaptation for Maldives. Adaptation is really, really important because we need to have um, we need to have a very strong adaptation and resilience um, policies in place in order to live in the future where we can avert um, losses and damages. So regardless of where people live, we believe that all countries, whether you're Norway or the Maldives, you're going to face increasing risks to biodiversity, to healthcare, to water, to food security, which are four things that are fundamentally needed for people to live well. And, and so we believe that if we can address if we can ensure that all countries are able to address the risks that you face in these four sectors and you have the resources to be able to take actions that are commensurate to the risks and plan your plan your development and your adaptation measures in these then you might you would be able to live well into the future where you know the climate crisis is there but hopefully that you you have you have the ability to address uh, the risks and and live well. So I think uh, our point is uh, what we are stressing in 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 the negotiations is that we want to live well and we want to ensure well being and we want to live uh, live in our homes even in a climate uncertain future. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying uh, reminds me of a of a common activist saying we want to thrive, not just survive. Yes. Um, and the the important difference there and. I actually wanted to go back real quick to to something that you had mentioned. You you speaking about adaptation made me think about it uh, when you said that the financial systems are not set up to address these issues. And even though that's outside of the, the 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 purview of what the COP is going to be discussing, I'd be curious if you could go into a little bit more about that. Like, what would the what would the financial systems? How would they need to shift to really address uh, the things that Maldives needs to see to to, to survive and thrive? Thank you. So the Maldives is a middle-income country, and currently, currently we we have we we do have uh, a lot of debt as well because um and, and and so the debt to GDP ratio is high. We're a middle-income country, but we do enjoy the benefits of the development that we have um that we have achieved over the years. What's currently happening in the Maldives is from our local domestic budget, we have to allocate a lot of uh, our funding to adaptation because there are more and more storms and more flooding and more, more tidal swells and, and the likes. So these are funds that could otherwise be used 
for things like education, for health, for social protection. So if if we aren't able to access the financing that we need to do adaptation and, and, and address and strengthen our resilience, and if we are depending on our local budgets uh, to to address these challenges that are you know that are not foreseen but they keep happening more more frequently, we could be in a situation where we slide back in terms of our development goals and where we where we don't get to enjoy our middle income status and 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 we have a more precarious um social and political stability uh in in, in other other situations so so therefore it's really important that financing is made available to countries and that you know there there are innovative ways of you know detonator swaps uh the green and blue bonds and 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 and, and doing conservation uh, conservation uh, projects uh for you know that will generate financing for countries like us and also it also ha- also um have reforms of the SDRs in in the IMF and and, and, and things like that that could really help us access uh, finance because there's an issue of both access and also the, 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 the simplification of access and also the time it takes for us to access. So in, in the global uh, financial um, institutions, for example, even in the GCF, it, could, it takes roughly from the project conception to project realization, it could take... Um, roughly four years or four to five years. So by the time the project actually is realized and we receive the funding, the initial scope of it and the reality on the ground could have changed. And also, you had to factor in um, you have to factor in um, the elections and 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 the different uh, governance cycles and all kinds of other things that could change priorities that could change the whole. Um, outcome of, of these projects. So we, we want simplified access and we, we want more creative um, solutions on how how even middle-income countries that, that are in debt, but also have the natural resources and, in, and have, um, and have um, these development goals can still realize projects and can do uh, projects in, in resilience um, so that we don't slide back we don't want to. We don't want to have to go back to the LDC status to access the finance. We're middle income now, and, and so there has to be solutions. So what I'm speaking about here is mainly uh, to do for middle income countries like us, uh, and and there are other countries like Barbados that are actively um, advocating for the financial uh, reforms. So that so that we are able to build back better and, and incorporate more resilience in our development work. Mm, yes, thank you for that, Ms. Nassim. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to add that I maybe didn't get to in in, in my questions to you? Uh, well, thank you so much. Um, I I would just like to once again highlight the low lying nature of the Maldives with the elevation of just one meter above the main sea level and how vulnerable we are. Uh, particularly to sea level rise and and also also the increase in severity of coastal erosion and, and the vulnerabilities. Um, and I'd also like to say here that you know we're 86 months away from 2030 
And so I would like to just point out the very limited time we have in keeping uh, the 1.5 alive and, and, and also to make the finances um, available and also have more ambition outcomes on adaptation and solutions for losses and damages. So there's a lot to be done and, and we have very high expectations for the COP and, and we hope to have good outcomes on keeping the 1.5 alive, ensuring that the loss and damage of financing mechanism, some kind of agreement could be reached on that. We also want the global goal on adaptation, the work on, on establishing what the goal is to, to advance significantly um, in, in the time. And, and we hope that the world comes together to deliver on this. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I actually wanted to, to ask one one more thing. I'm sorry. I have a tendency to do this. Like somebody <laughs> says something and like, aha, um, what do you feel that people in the United States in these larger states uh, could do to support small island nations like the Maldives? Thank you for this question. So actually, I think I, I think the people of your country can also play an important role in in advocating for the government to to take actions that would change the way your economy works in terms of the the, the emissions because we we really we really need to bring the emissions uh, to you know to to be in line with the 1.5 degrees and and there are things that the citizens can do to adopt um, more climate-friendly lifestyles and all of that. But really, it's really important to pressure your governments to 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 take the action that, that would help the small island countries like us survive in the, in the face of um, the climate threats. You're tuned to the Project Censored Radio Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. Stay with us. That you cradle the sun Living in remorse Sky is over Don't you want to hold me, baby? Disappointed Going crazy Even though we can't afford The sky is over Even though we can't afford The sky is over Can't afford the sky yeah. 
Thank you, everyone, for joining us, the Project Censored radio show. We are very glad right now to be joined by Rory Verato, who's a Ph.D. candidate in the philosophy and education program at Columbia University and an adjunct professor of philosophy at Fordham University. Rory's research and activism focus on what he calls, quote, existential education in the Anthropocene, which is the broad process of learning how to be and to become human in this ongoing age of extinction. Rory was also co-founding member of Extinction Rebellion in New York City, where he served for three years on the board of directors and as media liaison. And you can find more information about Rory's life and work, including upcoming book releases at his website, www.roryverado.com. Rory, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Eleanor. Thanks for having me. So the COP meetings, by the time that this is airing, have started, perhaps even ended by the time people are listening to this. Mm. And I don't want to say that I have a crystal ball or anything, (laughs) (laughs) but I'd be willing to wager that the the monumental change that we're looking for won't be even in the, uh, the the bold statements or the fine print or what have you. And I feel like a lot of this is because of the quote unquote green capitalism issue and how much we can really expect of a COP or really any climate summit if capitalism itself is not discussed and found to be at fault. Uh, can you can we start off, first of all, with your experience in climate organizing talking about how you feel about the COP meetings and this issue of quote unquote green capitalism. For sure. Um, Yeah. So you may not have a crystal ball, right? But as Shakespeare wrote in The Tempest, what's past is prologue. So, I mean, we can reasonably anticipate with this COP, as with all the previous ones, that nothing revolutionary is going to emerge. And I use that word revolutionary advisedly because as you mentioned, the issue here is capitalism, right? And I think any reasonable person who's informed on uh, political history knows that the only way to meaningfully challenge capitalism is to overthrow it revolutionarily, ideally peacefully, right? But that's not going to come out of a meeting of some of the essentially bourgeois elites. So, um, you know, in connection with climate activism, uh, and especially my experience with Extinction Rebellion, and some of these uh, emergent groups like Just Stop Oil, I think, uh, you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, Extinction Rebellion, for example, its explicit uh, founding demands were revolutionary in nature. There was a theory of change that was aimed at uh, transfer of power, as Chris Hedges has described it, from those ruling elites in the petrocapitalist system to uh, a democratized federation of global citizens, for lack of a better term. And of course, that's not anywhere near being achieved, but neither are really any of Extinction Rebellion's other demands, unfortunately, despite all of our efforts and hard work. For example, the demand that uh, we reach carbon uh, neutral emissions by 2025, uh, you know, emissions are continuing to increase year on year. Is COP going to address these? Maybe they'll speak about it. They'll speak in circles about it. Um, But there's not going to be any kind of policy measures, uh, of course, that will flow from this meeting that will actually produce that outcome. Uh, 
I think that you you sort of touched on this without expressly saying it. The the cops, at least the ones that I've been to personally or heard of, a lot of people in protests were talking about false solutions and oh, this is another false solution and this is going to be a false solution. What do you feel like uh, we should be watching out for, or do you feel like? There's anything that we could latch onto that could kind of be a sort of boat that could sail us through a rocky period here? Or is everything that comes out of COP, do you feel like that's just a false solution? Yeah, well, I may reveal some of my doomerous tendencies here, um, you know, and I've spoken with others like this, including Lee Camp and others. You know, I have a very grim a uh, grim view of our predicament because uh in the broadest sense my view is that it was already too late before you and I were even born there's a certain amount of historical inertia that's built into essentially the industrial revolution and even if we flipped a magic switch and stopped all carbon emissions tonight that sort of path dependency is going to unfold um and it's going to it already is producing catastrophic effects in those those catastrophic effects are going to continue to worsen. So, um, you know, with that having been said, we can still and we should still take try to take as much meaningful action as we can to mitigate uh, the disaster that that we face. Um, You know, if we can, through policy measures, save millions of lives in the face of billions that may die, that's still that's still significant and meaningful. Um, so what might we be on the lookout for? I think anything, first of all, you know, that that uh, follows from revolutionary language being introduced into the mainstream rhetoric and lexicon. You know, I've been a little bit encouraged to see figures like Greta Thunberg uh, begin to pivot towards this revolutionary uh, posturing and positioning, and yet, in my view, still falling short of calling out the sort of capitalist, uh, petro-capitalist superstructure. So, you know, nibbling at the edges, carbon tax would be nice. Um, You know, national or planetary carbon tax. Let's internalize those externalities that have been um, sort of foisted upon us by the major fossil fuel corporations for so many decades. For me, that's step one. I know for many people, that's kind of like the ultimate goal, uh, you know, and that's like the end if we can achieve something like on that scale. But given how I view the gravity of the problem, that's that's just the very beginning. So anything that gestures towards that, I would I would be in support of and on the lookout for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, know, you mentioned uh, Greta, who has all of a sudden not no longer gracing the covers of like Time Magazine and such. And and I, mm-hmm. I've, I've always found it problematic to have a single figurehead, much less a single figurehead who's, you know, 13 or however old she was when this all started. But now that she's starting to question capitalism, the uh, the, the big green and the uh, the Obamas of the world are like, <laughs> <laughs> right, not this, uh, which is very telling. Mm-hmm. So kind of in that same in that same vein, because I, I know that you you're you're into philosophy in a very uh, official way. I'm into <laughs> philosophy in an unofficial way, like kind of being uh, morbidly curious and uh, and darkly mysterious in a corner reading Nietzsche. That's my kind of thing. Um, That's but, mine, too, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
the the language is always something that that I find so fascinating. And we talk about this a lot at Project Censor too, but the, the way that language is used to make us think that something revolutionary might be happening and yet it's really not. So I, I'm also curious in terms of the, the the difference between what we're seeing in terms of the global north throwing out these promises and throwing out these uh, these big words and how that would potentially affect the global south and uh, of course there's a there's a racial aspect to that as well uh, so mm-hmm. I'm curious your thoughts on not just making the the U.S. and the EU go green but how how we need to make sure that that wouldn't affect the rest of the world negatively. Yeah, for sure. It's a big question and a big part of the problem, I think. And for me, you know, one thing that I immediately go to is recognizing the violence in this system, right? So we talk about capitalism, global capitalism, global petrocapitalism, but it's all undergirded and enforced by imperialism, right? Imperialism of various stripes, most importantly, U.S. hegemonic imperialism, which is imposed globally, but particularly in the South, the global South. And so anything, you know, any rhetoric, any language that uh, ignores or sanitizes the literal, you know, uh, deliberate and organized violence uh, that maintains this system is falling far short at the very least and more likely in my view sort of subtly and very surreptitiously reinforcing and strengthening the uh, extractive economy that is the problem so you know uh, we can't speak about this kind of stuff without recognizing for example as people like Um, Jeffrey Sachs, professor at Columbia University, Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst and Soviet specialist, have both pointed out, among others, that it's almost certainly the case that the United States government and its allies uh, sabotaged the Nord Stream pipeline um, recently, a multi-billion dollar project that was um, involving, you know, the sale of Russian energy commodities to primarily German Germany and other European markets. And immediately afterwards, as probably many listeners may know, the Secretary of State, uh, Antony Blinken, essentially framed this as a as a great thing because now it opens up the market for liquid natural gas from the United States to flow into Europe. And we see very directly and concretely there, I think, an example of the way in which uh, military violence is used to facilitate the continued uh, operation of the extractive economy and to the benefit of, you know, this cabal of global elites, the 0.1% or whichever, wherever you want to place the decimal, um, who who benefit from these these ongoing transactions in, in significant, uh, significantly at the expense of uh, people in the global south who, who continue to be immiserated as a result. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I like that wherever you want to put the decimal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and and I, I really like that you that you touched on the military aspect and imperialism, because I think it highlights another aspect that probably won't get spoken about, uh, perhaps even outside of COP very much. But that's the con- the the connectivity of issues. And, you know, I, I usually say that there's no such thing as a single issue because nobody lives a single issue life. And I kind of want to shift here because I know that you're working on a book that mm. uh, that that dabbles with human nature. Yes. <laughs> um, and 
I mean, Bookchin has talked about this. Kropotkin famously discussed it, of course, in his book titled Mutual Aid. And recently on the show, uh, we, we we talked about a, a book called Building Power When the Lights Go Out about uh, mutual aid, where I actually have mm. a, a, an essay in that book that talks, that's called Many Ways to Human. So this this issue of human nature is something that I nerd out on uh, as well, and I'm curious because you had mentioned that you're kind of a dooms uh, a dooms kind of person, and I always end up being that person at the party in the corner drinking wine on my own because no one wants to talk about the end of the world with me. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you see our prospects as humans facing our doom, a doom of our own making? With regards to human nature, I am curious uh, about your take on that as both a academic and in, in terms of your work in direct action. Yes. Well, thank you for asking that. And of course, it's like such a massive question. We could have a two hour long podcast about just that. But I will say, attempt to say in brief, you know, the for me, human nature, you know, the very concept or term human nature has almost been eliminated from intellectual discourse. Um, And in fact, I've taught a course titled Philosophy of Human Nature for several years and uh, at Fordham University and administration is moving to eliminate that course or to at least retitle it or rebrand it to something that is uh, that dovetails more uh, adequately with, you know, our sort of positivistic, scientistic mindset. Um, and especially within the context of higher education, the sort of vocational perspective, how am I going to get a job uh, as an expert on human nature? Okay, so with that having been said, for me, uh, there's a deeply psychological aspect to all of this, and, and, and my views on human nature are particularly informed by humanistic and existential psychologists like Carl Rogers, Abraham Maslow, and others. And there's in 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 sort of repressing or eliminating the conversation about human nature, it should reveal to us the profound significance, actually, of dealing with human nature, um, especially as an aspect of this problem. So, for example, I wrote an essay a few years ago, which gained some popularity and traction online, and I titled it, We Are the Threat. Humans are the threat, Right we have to take ourselves as the problem as as a thing that can be changed our human nature itself we're so externally oriented um if we just tweak this if we just change our economic practices or if we just buy electric cars etc cetera, etc cetera, always looking outward always looking in particular for uh quick fixes through technological devices and inventions um and never looking inward at the ways in which human nature first of all, already always already operates within us. And secondly, uh, as as something that can be modified and, and, and changed and transformed in particular, transformation through education, I think, is the way that we could, if this problem could be solved of our potential extinction, which I, you know, in my doomerist fashion, essentially say that it cannot. <laughs> but if it could, and we were to think through it seriously, it would require a profound transformation of our consciousness. And this is not unprecedented in human evolutionary history, right? At some point, for example, our species decided to start speaking. We developed this capacity for language, and it and it spread throughout the species almost simultaneously, planet-wide. Well, that's a complete transformation of human consciousness that happened quite suddenly, uh, there's no reason that some ki- some kind of evolutionary transformative insight of that nature could not occur now. And in fact, I think it's more likely 
to be prompted by a crisis such as this, an existential a crisis of mortality. You know, Marx wrote, once wrote that uh, humans only saw, uh, only set such problems that they can solve for themselves. In other words, we have to perceive the problem before we can actually uh, set about uh, changing or resolving it. And so that recognition is what I is what I strive to achieve through my research and activism and writing. And I think it's perhaps the most single important thing that we can do is to frame all of this as an immediate uh, mortal threat to each of us and and our uh, offspring in particular. That's why I so saw like I'm writing my dissertation as a philosophical dialogue through the uh, exploring the question of the ethics of procreation in the Anthropocene, right? Should we be having children? And there's all, there's empirical evidence supporting uh, the notion, there's polling that's been done, that there's a rise in especially like the broadly construed millennial generation and younger. There's a, there's a, um, a small but significant increase in people who are stating that they are choosing not to have children specifically because of problems in the world and as a subset of that because of the climate and ecological crises. So that dawning recognition, I think, is what we have to tap into. And I think we can meaningfully link it with human nature uh, and, and begin to imagine new ways for us to be and to become in the face of this threat in the Anthropocene. You're tuned to the Project Censored radio show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our conversation with professor and activist Rory Verato right after this brief musical break. So stay with us. Absolutely. And 
uh, as you pointed out, this is a question that could have a a, a day long answer. Um, but I appreciate your sort of giving a taste there, and and yeah, and I think that uh, that 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 question of the ethics of procreation is obviously something that I've uh, considered quite a bit in the past couple of years. And I think it's it, it kind of kind of goes back to one of the primary issues is that humans see ourselves as separate from nature. Yes. And if we if we really recognize that we are part of nature and that we exist in these cycles of uh, of of birth and death and rebirth and death and and, and all of that then the issue of ethically uh, reproducing is kind of a moot point because we recognize that everything is constantly being born and dying and being born and dying mm-hmm. and if we ourselves want to be part of nature then we shouldn't adopt this sort of some people might term it eco-fascist where humans could just do the best if we all just sat down and died like the stoics suggested um <laughs> like we we shouldn't adopt that kind of perspective but rather how mm-hmm. can we continue on and flourish but in a way that is with nature as opposed to against it or attempting to be outside of it which is of course ridiculous because you can't yes. so yeah i mean there's oodles to say about that and uh, many, many more tangents to go on about that. But it is a, it's a fascinating idea that that switch of consciousness that you're talking about. And I, I, I'd like to think that I see it in pockets, but of course not in a, not in a <laughs> widespread way. No, but I'm sure that you do see it. And one, just one more thing that I'll add is that for me, you know, there's a lot of developmental psychology behind this notion of transformation of consciousness, but ultimately it's as fundamental as something that everyone can intuitively grasp, which is that there is a stage of being or existence that is as qualitatively distinct as uh, the one that exists between what we call children and adults. In other words, there's a more mature adulthood uh, that can be reached, uh, I want to suggest, and I think many others have suggested this. Um, but unfortunately, as I think you were just alluding to, our uh, cultural systems and economic systems in particular inhibit that development. They separate us from nature. They prevent us from fulfilling our pot- our potential and to get kind of flowery, so be, you know, transition from a caterpillar to a butterfly, so to speak. Uh, that's the kind of metamorphosis that that is latent within us um, and that can be actualized if our social systems would work with us instead of against us. And that, again, circles back for me to this revolutionary position um, that I take. I have to say, I appreciate that you uh, that you say revolutionary often in your interviews, because I think some people say it and then kind of back away from it. And I think a lot of that has to do with our programming, right? We're taught that a revolutions always end up with battlefields where you know uh, tens of thousands of people lay dead or dying, uh, and also it's more recently something that happens in those creepy communist places that are all bad. <laughs> right? Yeah, Cuba. It's so horrible. Uh, I know wherever, their largest yeah. export is doctors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what a terrible awful. world that would be. I know, right? <laughs> um, so, so Rory, uh, 
I know that you have a, a website where folks can check out your work. Are there other things that you'd recommend to folks uh, who want to stay up to date on not just what you're doing, but how to maybe plug into to something to do with climate that can possibly walk hand in hand with being a, uh, a, a doom and gloom type person, but also a direct action kind of person? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, for sure, I, despite my criticisms, I would continue to support and I always will continue to support the demands and principles of Extinction Rebellion uh, as as they were formulated at its founding. And so I would direct people there. There's a a global network of chapters and people involved. So uh, just Googling that or checking out in particular the Extinction Rebellion New York City chapter online and across social media. Um, From what I've seen of this emergent Just Stop Oil movement, it seems to be on the right track as well. I haven't dug into its specifics quite yet, but uh, that's another thing. Um, but then, you know, I think one one important thing is to also unplug uh, from certain things, you know, disconnect from the systems of power uh, that are influencing our daily lives and think critically about how we want to engage and to what extent and 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 sort of what we lose when we spend time engaging, for example, in online spaces that are corporate controlled, um, you know, maybe sit back and read some books instead <laughs> Uh, it's, it's really that simple. Or go out into nature, uh, spend some time alone also. Do that inner work that I was gesturing towards earlier. That's what I would recommend, perhaps most strongly. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for pointing that out, because I don't think I've had a guest point that out before. <laughs> yeah, if if we're talking about defend what you love, we have to learn how to love it first. So, Absolutely. So thank you so much, Rory. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Eleanor. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield, co-hosting with Mickey Huff. For this episode, I've also been your associate producer, and Anthony Fest is our senior producer. Project Censored Radio airs on roughly 50 stations across the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find all our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram just before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to contact us, share your feedback, or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org and see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me specifically, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. You can also follow me on social media at Radical Eleanor. Last but not least, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Political ties, habitualized alibis, guys, and other guys, democracy.